electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. just can't get away from politics. Senator Elizabeth Warren has a bone to pick with Facebook. Mainly, it's standards for political ads. After Facebook refused to take down a Trump campaign ad that accused Biden of wrongdoing connected to his son Hunter's work in Ukraine, Warren uh, fired back. She posted her own Facebook ad that started with a false claim that Facebook and founder Mark Zuckerberg have endorsed Trump for re-election. A little farther afield, meanwhile, Activision Blizzard is caught out in the storm of controversy around Hong Kong. Chung Ng Wai, a Hearthstone player, was removed from a tournament, denied prize money, and banned for a year for saying, in a post-game interview, liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our age. ATVI has since softened a little, saying they'll let him have his $10,000 prize money and ban him for just six months. Well, welcome to Fort Knox. Rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Ford from CNBC here at the New York Stock Exchange this time in lower Manhattan. With me this week to talk free speech and more from L.A., Mike Jackson is CEO and principal at Modus One and founder of 2050 Marketing. And here in New York, Neil Patel is the editor-in-chief of The Verge, also uh, known for The Verge cast. <laughs> and uh, vodka brands. So uh, great to have both of you. Mike, so is this even a fair expectation, taking Elizabeth Warren and Facebook first, that she seems to have here? I mean, five years ago, it was a case out of Ohio. Uh, District Court Judge Timothy Black said the government shouldn't be in the business of policing what's true and false when it comes to political advertising, unlike uh, product advertising. So if the government can't do it, why should Facebook? Well, it's, it's a complicated uh, challenge for Facebook because it, it's almost like they're like wanting or inviting regulation, if you will. Uh, obviously, if you're a broadcaster, uh, you can't run deceptive ads. Um, you do go through great lengths to approve uh, the content. And in this case, uh, Facebook should really police itself. And Changing the policy the day before you get a multi-million dollar campaign uh, buy from the Trump campaign, that's just inviting uh, regulation in my mind. Now, Neil, it's weird. I find myself on the other side of this one, at least to an extent, because even though it might be a good practice to refuse ads that you believe are false, there's no law against it. And unlike linear television, where there's only so many hours in a day for you to have to police, Facebook's got like literally billions of people potentially placing ads. Is it, is it even reasonable for them to police that in the way that Elizabeth Warren wants? I think the hard problem for Facebook is if they actually ban deceptive ads, there's a realistic chance that Donald Trump would not be able to advertise at all, which is a, it's a huge issue in this campaign, um, particularly for Trump as a candidate. Okay. So I think they're looking at the reality of the Republican candidate for president might be barred from our platform if we 
hold ourselves to a standard that linear television does. The other thing is linear television, those regulations are based on getting a license from the government for airwaves, which is a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. Cable television often doesn't have those restrictions, right? Facebook isn't getting a scarce resource from the government. So the idea that you can impose, you need to find a theory to impose a regulation there that is in the public interest, that isn't based on, well, there's only so many megahertz of broadcast. And don't they also, don't they have to do this not just at a national level, if they're gonna do it, but also every local election, they're a global platform, so every election in every European Union country throughout Asia, you know, everywhere. I mean, is that is that something that is even possible with all of the other uh, ways that they're trying to police the platform? You guys at The Verge have written a lot about that. Just for even bad content, can they be uh, mediators and arbiters as well of what's politically true? When it comes to just posting content, um, I, I think that's something that's going to be very hard to police. But when you're talking about advertising, um, I think it's, it's definitely something that can be done. Uh, you know, clearly they're taking in millions and millions of dollars in advertising. And safeguarding kind of individuals on the platform from this kind of mistreatment, if you will, by spewing false messages. I just really think that, you know, I think Bill Gates said it best, uh, don't break up Facebook, but some form of regulation is definitely needed, specifically as it relates to advertising. Is, is, are we asking, Nile, for, for Facebook to be the government we wish we had? Yeah, a little bit. I, you know, to your question about can you regulate this internationally, if Facebook wants to be the size it is, it has to be able to implement country-by-country country policies around election advertising, and they're, and they're doing some of that. I think whenever we talk to them or we write pieces that are critical of them, they often tell us, maybe that would work in the United States, but you hand this policy to an authoritarian government somewhere else, and this actually becomes a tool of repression. Hmm. This actually becomes a tool of dictatorial control. And that's what you Timothy Black said. The judge in the U.S. said, well, do you really want government to have the power to say, you know what, actually, we're deciding that's false, and therefore it can't be said. Because, you know, for whatever, maybe yeah. legitimately, but maybe it's just against the, the, the interest of the party in power. And to your specific question about does Facebook just want to be the government that we wish we had, I think the answer is actually yes. If you look at the criticism, particularly Warren Zuckerberg fight, the sort of access to that fight is when conservatives criticize Facebook, Zuckerberg shows up. He apologized to them. The company apologized. We're going to do better. We know you feel like you have this bias. It's true that our employees are, are liberal. They apologize to conservatives. They kowtow to conservatives. When Warren criticizes Facebook, Zuckerberg tells his staff, hey, this is an existential threat. We're definitely going to fight it. <laughs> right? And so there is that break. And I think what Facebook would, you know, there were hearings about uh, Section 230 on the Hill today. Uh -huh. Facebook wasn't there. Um, I think what they would love more than anything is for the government to say, you know what? You are the monopoly. You, you're here. We got you. Settle down. We're going to regulate you. Competitors won't be able to meet that burden of regulation. So you just take it over, and we're gonna. The government will just like monkey with you every now and again. That, that's an interesting observation from Neela, uh, Mike. I, I wonder if this is kind of Zuckerberg's sister soldier strategy, right? Of of you know, kind of being nice with the conservatives and then you know standing up to the liberals, and maybe that makes this Silicon Valley guy who's still known for hoodies, even though I, I probably haven't seen him one in five <laughs> years. Uh, maybe it look, makes him look a little bit more down the middle. Like I said, I have a hard time trying to understand what, what, what's in his head. Um, when you've created <laughs> such a successful platform 
when you're like the darling of all these major advertisers that are driving significant engagement, you know, why get in the middle of a fight that, frankly, is not going to go away between liberals and conservatives and, and really, frankly, just do the right thing? I mean, the whole notion of Facebook and, and, and Mark's positioning when he started was, you know, responsibility and, and you know, we're going to allow engagement amongst individuals and we're going to foster this, this society based on sharing. And, and now, like I said, it, in some cases, I actually think he's waiting, to your point, uh, to, to be treated as this monopoly and take the easy road out by, by inviting some regulatory body, which frankly is not going to solve the issue, as we all know. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Let's talk some Hong Kong uh, to get even more complicated for a, a moment. So uh, if you look at the situation there, Activision Blizzard arguably screwed this one up. Um, I always like to do the apartheid test, you know, being if this business had treated anti-apartheid speech the same way 35 years ago as they're treating whatever issue today, how would it look? If they had said, oh, you spoke out against apartheid, you're banned for a year, we're going to take your prize money. Neil, that, that would not have looked very good. What should Activision Blizzard have done? Do companies at this point just have to rethink their level of engagement commitment in the Chinese market? Yeah, so the apartheid uh, comparison is interesting because a lot of companies did do business in South Africa yeah, during that it, time, and, and they didn't, didn't really face any blowback. Well, and eventually, there had to be a pressure campaign to get them to. Yes. To, I mean, like rock stars were playing in South Africa, and that would, there needed to be a pressure campaign just to get you two from to stop going there. Uh huh. Uh, I think in this case, uh, the the way I think about it is like emission standards. We know California has the highest emission standards in the country. Car makers who want to participate in our market, they build to California standards. Mm. China has the strictest speech standards for big markets. It is natural to think that these big companies who want to play on a global scale are just going to pick the most restrictive standards. To get them to not do that, to do the most efficient decision-making about their products, about their employee speech, you have to provide some other incentive. And I think that other incentive right now looks like a lot of people in America saying, hey, this isn't right. This isn't what we want you to do. And it probably looks like some sort of scheme from our government saying, we're at, we will actually protect you in the market, the global market, if you uphold American values as you go play in these other countries. Wow, Mike, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense, the emission standards comparison. Do we end up with a, a global standard for speech that, that goes to the lowest common denominator, that goes to China, where Tiananmen Square you know, eventually gets scrubbed. Nobody can learn about it because everybody wants a Chinese buck. I mean, maybe the South Park episode, as funny as it was, isn't really that funny anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not funny, and I hadn't you know, made the correlation between the emission standards, but that's obviously a, a, a very profound example. You know, it's just crazy because in, in, in China, you know, most of these businesses are being operated um, as part of a joint venture with typically a state-run entity. And so the fact that you're in partnership with the state, uh, clearly it's a communist environment, um, you know, really driven by, you know, propaganda. It just makes it very, very difficult for these brands to try to control, you know, all the dialogue, whether it's coming from a general manager of the Houston Rockets or it's coming from uh, a gamer. Yeah, and Neil, I... It seems like what really changed here is China's stance toward Hong Kong. Like, when it was just about mainland China, it's sort of like, oh, well, everybody in mainland China, 
knows that they're in mainland China, that sort of agreed upon. You don't see any protests there, yeah, for better or for worse, right? Really, for worse, for, right, for where worse, we yeah. sit here in the U.S. But, but Hong Kong was supposed to have a, a level of freedom, a level of democracy that was different. China's pushed back on that. And now, is it, is it okay for, for Western brands to sort of impose, be willing to impose mainland China standards on this territory that was operating under different auspices? I think it's weird for an American company or any American to not look at a bunch of pro-democracy activists and say, yep, we're on your side. That's actually where, where we belong. That's America. Here's the flag. It's particularly weird for our, our sports leagues to pick sides. The NBA is, is notable for being an outspoken, player-driven league. It's, it's weird for LeBron James to be like, maybe you shouldn't have said that. Think about his, the number of social causes that he's been involved in. At the same time, I think overall what we're seeing across even our economy just domestically is it is profitable to have the right values right now in America. You're Nike, you're siding with Colin Kaepernick. Why is he out the league? Because he spoke his mind. But isn't it also profitable to have the wrong values? I mean, yes. I mean, but sometimes. I mean, we're in a ten-year bull market, Mike. I mean, everything seems to be profitable. Maybe that's the problem. It's it's profitable to be socially conscious. It's profitable to do business in China. Yeah, and it's it's it, to to your point. It's a very crazy, confusing issue because it was really easy. I did business in my career in China, and frankly, it was very easy to stay away from in in a business environment talking about Tiananmen Square, if you will. Uh, but you translate that to Hong Kong and maybe even Taiwan now, who you know, obviously are very afraid uh, as it relates to what's about what's happening in, in Hong Kong. And then you look at the fact that the NBA has a $4.5 billion advertising joint venture uh, with a Chinese entity. So um, it's almost like, I, I agree, just taking the lowest common denominator, supporting free speech, and then dealing with the joint venture issues that are ultimately going to come from the Chinese state-controlled entities. Yeah, this is and I think the other piece here is that the, the promise of globalization, and particularly the Internet as it relates to globalization, is that American values would spread. Mm -hmm. That America's culture was actually our biggest asset, whether you're talking about just Hollywood movies, whether you're just talking about the, the culture of entrepreneurship, that what we're going to export is American values, the American market system. And what we're finding right now is the, the Chinese government and its sort of associate entities has enough money to make our industry rethink whether or not they're going to enforce their value system abroad in exchange for money. That, I think that's a... I don't want to give too much credit to Donald Trump. Donald Trump made a lot of people rethink globalization. Yeah. This is a moment where it's conflicting with values that everybody shares. And I think as part of that rethinking of globalization, everyone, regardless of your political alignment, is thinking whether that trade of globalization to export American values is returning what we expected it to. It's, the, all these situations have made me rethink that idea of the sort of universally assumed happy ending. I think it was true with engagement with China. Everybody sort of thought, oh, we'll engage will trade and then they'll open up and they'll get more liberal and things will be better and eventually they'll be just like the United States as they reach our standard of living. Same thing went for social media. The idea was, oh, everybody will talk and open up and sharing is always good and it'll lead to healthier, happier people and marriages and kids will grow up smiling and that's not working out either. And so the question is now, what do we do? Well, we can't entirely answer that question oh, yeah, today. Ten more minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah ten minutes. We can out. fix it. But instead, instead of fixing it, we are going to get 
those digits, uh, some numbers that caught my eye this week. First up, Siri, give it to us. Seven. Seven. That is how many founding members have dropped out of Facebook's Libra coalition just this week. That's a quarter of its partners. They are focused in on the payments area. That's where a lot of the people, companies, backed away. Neil, I still feel like Facebook's going to end up doing what it wants here. I mean, they're they're going to build Libra. Yeah. That's what it wants to do. It's going to build Libra. You know, they had their first charter meeting in Geneva this week. Mm -hmm. We saw the dropouts come before that. That was a real make or break test for Facebook. Right, signed everybody up, had the hype moment. Okay, now you gotta show up and help us write the charter. You're gonna really come on board. I think it's better that people dropped out before that moment, right? So now the project is real. They're writing its charter. They're gonna start building it. They're gonna face the regulatory scrutiny. The people who are on board are now committed. Whether they're gonna get the additional set of commitments they need or whether they're just gonna be, continue to be a laughing stock both in sort of the, the financial regulatory community and the cryptocurrency community, that remains to be seen. Mike, what do you tell Facebook to do at this point from a total brand and reputation standpoint? Clearly they see uh, this currency as being key to their future in the sense that, I mean, I, I think it's about the wallet. You know, they figure if they can spearhead the creation of this currency, then they, they can connect the dots between advertising and actual spending and they get even more powerful. But uh, if they're gonna do that, they, clearly they thought that bringing companies together was going to be the answer. Do they now have to bring governments together, or do they have to back away from the project? What do you think? Well, I mean, um, they're obviously committed to the project. You know, they've got you know 21 entities, you know, kind of join joining them to, to try to try to build it. Um, you would think that they would be, you know, mindful of the fact that you know there's there's states like California and there there's the European Union. Uh, that really are focusing on, as we move forward, protecting consumers. Uh, it's just going to draw a lot of scrutiny. But again, they're focused on, if I can get the wallet, I already control the advertising dollars. Um, I've got privacy, you know, kind of under my realm of responsibility. And uh, I can take over the world. I, I, I hate to say it, I just don't trust uh, that they've got the best interest of the audience in mind. I, I think they're basically chasing the wallet, as you said. Well, uh, that certainly does line up with the track record. That's how the, these companies didn't get big by, you know, running away from the wallet. Yeah. I mean, Facebook wants to be a, a monopoly. It, it, it is oriented towards having all of the users all of the time. To their credit, they're successful at that. They're not shy about it. If they take over the world's monetary system, I think they should face a little bit more scrutiny than they have. And honestly, be a little less emo in their statements right now. <laughs> like, all their statements are like, it's a setback, but not really. Everyone must search inside their soul and it's like guys you're starting a bank like bankers don't talk like this <laughs> yeah that's that's true i'm sure they can find somebody who does all right siri give us that next digit 43 percent 43 percent uh background here google releasing the fourth edition of its pixel smartphone this week 43 percent is the amount as of last q4 that pixel grew in north america made it the most popular, uh, well, I should say fastest growing, by far not the most popular, the fastest growing smartphone uh, in this market. Mila, you guys at The Verge cover gadgets up and down. I saw you yesterday at the Pixel event. Um, is that 43% growth number significant? Mostly it's supposed to be share taken from Samsung, not from Apple. What do you think? 
So 43% of a small base is still a small absolute number. Right. So I think that's, that's important. I think the last number we saw was it, it's only 5% of Verizon's total sales. Uh, I actually that's said, just Verizon. That's just one just carrier, carrier in the U.S. But uh, yeah. So they're growing. I think it's a great product. I've got the, here's the Pixel 4 right here. Uh, it's really fun. Um, I talked to Rick Osterlo, who's Google's devices chief yesterday. Mm -hmm. and I said, look, the smartphone market is slowing down. Um, you've got to take share from Apple. You've got to take share from your own partner. And he was not shy about it. He knows that's what he's got to do. And he's saying, look, we know the upgrade cycle's slowing down. People are making bigger decisions than ever. So now it's not a two-year decision or a one-year decision. It might be a three, four, five-year decision. We think we're well-positioned to compete at that decision point. Importantly, they're on every carrier now. They're on AT&T as well. That was a big missing gap for them. Mm -hmm. And I think Google is committed to really marketing the phone, which is not something they've done well in the past. So they do have to body up against Apple and Samsung, and they at least they know it. They're not, I don't think they're confused about that. Mike, we're in a fascinating era. I mean, I've covered hardware for a while. I was covering Apple back in 2000. Uh, off and on, mostly on since then. And it used to be that hardware was potentially this big quagmire where you could lose tons of money if you were not successful within a narrow period of time, if you built up too much inventory, if you advertised too soon. There are all these ways that it could absolutely sink you. But now we've got these companies like not just Apple, but Amazon, uh, Google, et cetera, who have enough money that they could take one in the chin for years and years and years and never really make big money at these devices, they're protecting ecosystems instead. How do you think about the value of hardware and how it's changed given all of that? You know, it, it's funny because I, I, I really like what, what Google's doing uh, with the phone and, and, and really viewing the phone as kind of almost just a foundation of their overall device strategy. You know, they've got Google Home and Google Nest, and they're trying to integrate all of these products together. And to your point, you know, they've got enough resources to really spend a lot of time on R&D and integrating these tools together uh, because they've just got huge, you know, revenue streams driven by their kind of advertising, you know, business model. So, I mean, I, I look at it as, you know, similarly to, to Apple years ago, using the Mac as the foundation to get inside the home, and ultimately, you know, you see where we are today. Uh, I like Google's strategy around the phone and being very aggressive and, 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 and delivering a product that's, that's aspirational, but, but I really focus on that being the foundation for them to really kind of dominate the kind of home space with Google Home, Google Nest, and a bunch of other products that are probably under development as well almost makes me wonder if uh, Amazon and Facebook made a mistake not sticking with their phones, but not, not quite. I think, I think they did the right thing. Smart home is probably better for both of them. All right, moving on. Siri, give us that last digit. 2,000. 2,000 is how many additional people WeWork is expected to lay off this week, according to a report out of The Guardian. Mike, WeWork, I mean, it's like fish on the counter. I, I don't know if I've seen something turn bad so quickly, at least in terms of the direction of hope to kind of, uh, everybody thinks that WeWork now looks terrible and is, is finding all the problems right after the prospectus came out. Uh, is this fixable? You know, it's a very tough situation, and, and I try to focus on that there's probably a lot of very, very good people there who joined WeWork at the start, you know, came up with all sorts of great ideas, strategy, probably had millions of dollars on the table um, as it relates to you know, when, when they did um, 
make a successful public offering. And, and all of that kind of blows up uh, based on the fact that you've got you know, a, a CEO, founder, leader, who clearly was focused on doing what was best for him and left the company in a very tough situation. I'm concerned that they may not survive uh, this onslaught. We've seen this before, Neil, and CEOs, founders who are kind of self-centered. A lot of times it works out for <laughs> big-name companies. What's the difference here? Is the fact that you're playing with actual stuff, like real estate, as opposed to software? I think so. There's no software margins there, and I think you see these layoffs. They're getting rid of a bunch of businesses that made no sense. They're closing down their school. Uh, their apartment situation here, we live, seems like it's going to eventually fade away over time. Their business model is not necessarily wrong, right? SoftBank gave them a ton of money. They bought a bunch of real estate. They're going to rent out that real estate at a premium to small businesses of all kinds. If they just focus on that, there are comps in the market that are making solid money doing that. They're just not world beaters the way that a Facebook is or a Google is. I think a lot of this recognizes that reality. Do you think it's a tech company? No, absolutely not. All right, okay. So, Mike, how much of this, too, is uh, people wanting to put tech on everything? Um, here's a company that was trying to take long-term leases and, and then you know, sublet on, on the short term, which is risky, and uh, the margins are questionable, and there's questions about what happens during a downturn. Um, a, a case where we've just been fat and happy too long on this bull market and we'll buy anything? You know, all, I mean, everybody's got, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook envy, right? Um, to, the <laughs> early, to the earlier point, you know, WeWork is a very innovative concept, um, specifically as it relates to kind of fostering entrepreneurism and, and giving individuals an opportunity to have a different business model from a, from a real estate perspective. Uh, to your point, they got greedy. Um, they wanted to make it a tech company. Uh, they didn't really focus on ensuring that they, they understand uh, the real estate market and, and all the nuances there. Um, but again, it, it, it's just tech envy. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these startups are suffering from it. Yeah, I, I hope they get it figured out. Sometimes you got to slim down, you know, people turn things around. Um, we work, there, there's a lot on the line just in terms of local city real estate markets. They're the biggest commercial real estate tenant in New York, some other places too, London, for example. I mean, if they, if they go down, it could be ugly. All right, Mile, Mike, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. Everyone, Thank you. see you next time. Thanks, John. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.